Your folks are gonna throw me right off that ranch. Relax, honey. You're my wife now. You're family. You are a Ewing. How in hell did she end up marrying him? I brought her to a couple of barbecues here. I didn't know if they're getting on that well. Well, I don't know about you, Ray, but I'm not standing still for this. We should have got hitched a long time ago. Maybe it's not too late. Oh, I don't know. It stops right now, JR. Pamela's my wife, and you're going to treat her with respect. Now, listen here, little brother. It was a dumb, stupid trick, Welcome to episode one of the Why Shot JR podcast. Uh, coming to you from the Sound Hole Part de Studios, home of the rents of Northern Kentucky. My name is Joshua Bush. And I am his better half, Leanna Bush. Indeed, we're a husband and wife super, super group here, and we're doing uh, a podcast, the inaugural episode of a podcast about. Uh, the TV show Dallas, and uh, I know what you're thinking, why in the hell would anybody be doing a podcast about a show that literally hasn't been on the air in uh, 30 years? And I would say to that, well, au contraire, there actually was a reboot or some such in the 2000s. 2012. Indeed, TNT, they put it back on the air. I never saw any of those, so I have no idea what that was about, but it lasted for three seasons. But anyway, uh, this is the first step of what's going to be an achingly, bone-crushingly long Batan Death March journey of 357 (laughs) episodes of a show. Uh, Actually, it is the one, two, three, four, fifth longest-running hour-long drama series in TV history. Fun factoid. Fun fact. Uh, can you name any of the other four? Why are you doing this to me? Yeah. Because say, two, two of these you uh, watched a lot. Well, and those are the two I have to say to you. Okay. ER? Mm, ER no? didn't make it. No, ER was about 10 seasons, I think. Grey's Anatomy? You know, now Grey's probably is going to be on there soon because it started around, what, 2004-ish? And it's still on, so yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be in the conversation now. I could totally. So maybe, maybe the Wikipedia entry needs to be updated because I think Grey's Anatomy probably has passed Dallas by now. Well, so yeah, uh, uh, let's put a let's put an asterisk there because I think Grey's Anatomy probably counts. But there are two others. I never watched dramas. These. Drama shows. One of them still on. They were one was a spinoff of the other. Law and Order. Yeah. So we got Law and SVU. And SVU, which is currently still rolling. Both of those are in the 400s. Wow. Uh, SVU actually, I think, is around 470, 480 as of 2020. And uh, the original Law and Order got to about 450 episodes. Huh. The other two, of course, are Gunsmoke, which literally ran from the dawn of television until about two years ago. So. It was on forever. 
seriously, from about, I think, 1950 to about 1975 or something ridiculous. 630-some episodes. My dad loved it. Talked about it all the time. I think your dad probably watched it, too. I'm sure he did. I don't know. He's not a big TV guy. But Gunsmoke might have been what did it for him. Well, it was one of those appointment TV things. You know, it was Sunday nights, 9 o'clock. The primetime, you know, the Simpsons slot, the X-Files slot, the whatever, you know. Well, and not unlike Dallas, I had never seen an episode of Gunsmoke. Had never seen Dallas until until recently. Well, I'm going to step on a lot of toes here, but I have seen a couple episodes of Gunsmoke. Uh, it's boring as shit. <laughs> not all, missing much? All of those TV westerns are just, it's the same... It's the bad guys come in from out of town, and Marshall Dillon's got to rectify the situation. By the, I mean, it's the same plot points week after week after week. I don't understand the appeal, but then again, you know, who are we to judge? Because after all, we're doing a show that probably no millennial could ever relate to or understand or even uh, probably will ever listen to this podcast. But just in case you do... I think it's a good idea before we get uh, sort of launched into episode one here to talk about why it is we would even do a podcast about a show that hasn't been on the air for 30 years. Yeah, but I have a question first. Sure. Am I a millennial? I don't know where I fit. Well, you're born in 83. 37 years old. Yeah. You're one of those straddlers. Uh, uh-huh. I think I, th- I think the cutoff there... Gen Xers generally rate from about 65 or 64 to 84. Yeah. So you're right at the very, very tail end of Gen X, the very start of the millennial. Just, so you just can, curious. You can count yourself in both camps. Wherever it you suits can be, me. Yeah, you can be non-binary. You can just, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be one or the other. You can just float. I like this. Just float. Makes me happy. Yeah. Okay. When it's just, you know, if it's more convenient for you to be a millennial one day, go with that. If you want to, you know, tell kids to get off your lawn, just turn into a Gen X. Which I do. There you go. NTI, I don't have that problem. <laughs> no kids on my lawn while school's out. Okay. So origin story, as far as the podcast, why do a show or a podcast about a show this ancient? And I think there's a number of reasons. One, probably the main one, it was just kind of a an epiphany you had um, while we were looking around for something to watch while you were convalescing from surgery a few months ago. Yep. And for some reason, we chose Dallas. I think that was my idea. And so for me, Dallas is a real nostalgia trip because it is there's two ch- two shows from my past when I was a very little kid um that are very sentimental because they connect me to time and a place and um basically uh, hanging out with my grandparents a lot when I was real young and it was this and it was uh Dukes of Hazard and they both came on on Fridays, Friday nights, which is weird. I mean, to think of putting 
your highest rated primetime shows in the Friday time slot. I think the last time they ever even thought of doing that was what the TGIF shows Ooh, maybe yeah, in the nineties. Yeah. And since then, I, I don't think they put anything of substance on Friday night. This used to be a thing though. All you, uh, younger folk out there who might be listening, they actually used to put the good shows that everybody watched on, on Friday. Sometimes the show ran on CBS Dukes of Hazard came on first at eight o'clock. That was my grandfather's favorite show. And then he would basically turn in and go to bed um, because he was of a weird, different generation where he got up at like five o'clock in the morning and went to bed about nine. Did that his whole life, even when he was retired. And so he would go to bed because he didn't want to watch, you know, the the chick shows the sissy TV that came on after. Right. And, uh, so then we had the Dallas and then, you know, later on the, the double dip of Dallas and Falcon Crest. Once we got into the, uh, the early eighties and those were my grandmother's favorite shows. And so I would stay up and watch that with her. Didn't understand a bit of it, but it was just good fun to, you know, to sort of be around your grandmother and sort of get into things that adults do when you're of that age, five and six, when you don't really understand what's going on, but it's just kind of fun to hang out with grownups. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to say that as a parent of a child who's almost five, I'm, I'm pretty glad it went over your head (laughs) now that we're watching it and exploring some of the themes, but I have similar, similar memories of stuff like that with my grandmother. And I think another kind of bit of nostalgia around Friday night TV. First of all, I don't think anybody even watches live TV anymore. We haven't in, I haven't in a really long time. I I can't even remember. So yeah, more than like building your schedule of what to do around the day of the week and time that a show comes on. It's more like, when are they going to drop the next season of blah, 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 and I need to clear my calendar for the next 24 hours so I can binge it all. Right. Like, that's kind of... And then, you know, you have shows like Handmaid's Tale and stuff that only one gets dropped a week, and that's kind of a pain in the ass Mm -hmm. because we're not used to that. But, yeah, the nostalgia of it. And then I think the reason um, Dallas with you was after having major surgery... Um, and being on plenty of narcotics, I just needed something kind of like mindless, but then I got hooked. And yeah, every well, you, night, well, yeah, we came to the right place <laughs> for the mindless every night. As soon as the kids were in bed, I was like, can we watch Dallas? Can we watch more Dallas? Well, and I think what you're, what you're getting at there alluding to is, is that there is something of quality to this show because it is addictive. Yeah. Like it makes you want to watch it and to watch it again and to watch it again, even though what you're watching is just basically a show about a group of really despicable rich folk who all deserve to be taken down a peg. Yeah. And there's not even like, I mean, other than a couple in the first few seasons, other than a couple of episodes that are like to be continued, um, there's really not a strong through line storyline it's it's like one loose story 
And then every episode is pretty self-contained. Like you could come into any episode without having seen prior ones, or in my case, nodding off with your morphine and and find like yeah, they're very episodic. Yeah, yeah. Which was that was the convention. This whole every show has to build on the previous show and then lead into the next show. Kind of uh, way of doing it is basically the something that came in with. HBO and prestige programming from the early 2000s. Sopranos, Wire. Oz. Oz, of course, probably the one that kicked off all of them. Yeah. yeah. And then later on, you know, your, your Mad Men, Breaking Bad. Well, now all. all, all and it's all just taken over. Yeah. yeah. It's, all, it's all that now. Yep. All right. You ready okay. to dive in? All right. Episode one. So episode one of... Of the big D for all you D heads out there. And you know what I'm talking about. Like four of us. We're, we're, we're getting the, we're, we're taking a deep, deep dive into the D here. It aired on April 2nd, 1978. So we're going to get way, way, way back in the way back machine. Carter's president. Uh, I did not look up what the number one movie or uh, song was of that week so fail for me first episode i meant to do that and i did not do that i'm going to guess uh close encounters could be wrong i know it came out that year anyway the episode is titled digger's daughter it was written by the uh show creator a man by the name of david jacobs as far as i can tell this was his first sort of show launch first thing he ever got off the ground and um he based a lot of Dallas, as far as the premise, on an old movie from the 1950s. I don't know you if you've ever seen it. It's called Giant. Have you ever seen Giant? No. All right. So Giant was one of these big budget um, Technicolor epics that the golden age of Hollywood used to put out. Uh, it starred Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and in his final tragic screen performance james dean uh he actually died before the movie came out and james dean played a man who uh went by the abbreviation jr uh-huh and the movie is about a ranch sort of a ranching dynasty in texas in the early part of the 20th century up until about the middle part of the 20th century up until about the 50s uh, as they transition from ranching and from you know being cattle barons to being oil barons when they discover oil on their land. So a lot of those themes of a kind of a, a wealthy dynasty in transition uh, in that movie show up in the Dallas TV show, especially with the dynamic between Miss Ellie and Jacques, which we discover later on was a sort of a arranged marriage almost in order to keep the whole South Fork ranch from sliding, I guess, probably into bankruptcy or something that Jacques oil money is what saved it. And so the Jacques Ewing fortune sort of props up this whole ranching ranch. yeah, side business that they have going. Yeah. But the, it's very, they make mention of it in several episodes, but more than once in this first episode, um, that there was an agreement 
between uh, Miss Ellie's father and Jock that South Fork was always to be a cattle ranch. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's that's the stipulation there. So they've maintained it as a cattle ranch, but really the whole the whole family fortune now is just about the black crude, the Texas yep. tea. The bubbling crude. Yeah, the, the bubbling crude coming up from the ground and they gotta get their hands on it however they can. And so they turn into some devious mofos in order to do that. Yeah. Uh so Digger's daughter is the title and uh sort of a recurring theme. For the Y Shot JR podcast, is we're going to rename these episodes. So I'm going to go first. I'm going to let you do episode two uh, next week. But I retitled this one The Pimp Gets Hitched. Oh. Because I see what you did there. Yeah. Because basically, what we're dealing with is the youngest brother of the Ewing clan, Bobby Ewing, uh, played by the. Uh, uh, incomparable Patrick Duffy. Who from, is from Step by Step. No stranger to Friday night television. Yeah, that's right. He, he went on to have another hit show uh, with the, uh, the thigh master checkers. <laughs> Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers. Right. Ran for several years. It was really excellent. Sit I also down. watched several episodes of Step by Step during my convalescent period. <sighs> yeah. So she, she's a Duff head. There's, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> but anyway, we, we're calling this The Pimp Gets Hitched because basically what Bobby Ewing, as we understand him, is doing for the Ewings and the Ewing business as the younger brother is basically going around to wealthy politicians, uh, meeting them at mm, conventions and in hotel rooms and whatever, and basically securing escorts for them in order to, I guess, grease the wheels in terms of legislation or uh, zoning or whatever the Ewings need in order to be able to drill in certain areas and, and, and do their thing, I guess. So yeah, this is this is Bobby's whole role with the family. Is and he's what does he call himself? The goodwill ambassador of yep. the Ewings. Goodwill ambassador of the Ewings, and like none of this is any kind of poorly kept secret or anything. Like no. it is loud and proud. Um, I'm sure you're going here, and I'm probably going to jump on on what you're saying next. Go ahead. But the episode opens with. Bobby driving in the car in the convertible. Yeah, and it's uh wintertime. Wintertime. They're all like bundled up, but they got the roof down and the windows up. Whatever. So they're driving down deserted highway in Texas, and he you find out that he is on his way home with his new wife. Pam. Pam. Who apparently they just decided on a whim while they were both vacationing in New Orleans to get married. And they stop at this gas station and he even tells his new bride that all the all it's about is the three B's, right? Oh yeah, right. Yeah. The three B's Booze, Broads, and Booty. And booty, which, you know, hey, forward thinking terminology there. I I didn't know booty was a thing. I didn't know that's what we did. Booty back in the seventies, but I guess I guess uh 
I guess maybe there were some songs that had booty in it, so, you know, I don't know it was a disco thing. Most men keep work in the briefcases. This is work, honey. I told you I'm Ewing Oil's Goodwill Ambassador. Got a whole satchel full of Goodwill there. Yeah, Daddy calls them bees. Booze, broads, and booty. It's what keeps the independent oilman independent. Booze, broads, and booty is the stock and trade for one... Turtlenecked, Bobby helmet Ewing. haired. Yeah, wow, what a head of hair! Oh, some hair, man! Glorious, glorious locks on, on the Duff Man in this episode. Uh, he's really letting it, letting it all. And I have to add, hang out the gas station I mentioned. When was the last time you've seen like a full service gas station? He pulls in. He was like. Yeah, can you pump my gas and then check under the hood and while you're at it, pull it around to the side because we're going in to eat. Uh, well, breakfast. that was a glorious era, you know, <laughs> when you could just be waited on hand and foot at, when you pulled up to your local petrol station. But I'm just saying, if you're the Ewings and you have that kind of money, I'm not eating any gas station breakfast. Like, <laughs> take me to a real damn restaurant, okay? Yeah, it's a little lowbrow. Um, he was real slumming it with his for the, wife for the honeymoon. It, and you know, this is also what's weird. They decide to elope. I don't know how it is. They even decided to rendezvous together in new Orleans. Had, yeah. they, had they been keeping the whole romance a secret up until that point? Because nobody knows that Pam and we'll get into this because who Pam is and her family. She comes from is sort of the source of all of the friction of the whole show, yeah, really, that's for the that first few seasons. Yeah, kind of through-line story. Yeah. Um, but all they say about the romance piece of it is that they were on a dance floor, I'm sure, doing some disco in 1978. Of course. And... Uh, to, the, to the Dallas disco theme that we'll later <laughs> oh, hear in another episode when they're actually disco dancing to a discified a club. version of... <laughs> The theme song of the show. It was hilarious. We decided they just didn't buy right. It's fantastic. To any other songs. But anyway, we digress. So they are dancing and Pam looks at him and the story he tells before at the cocktail hour before dinner on South Fork Ranch is that Pam looks at him and says, I love you. And he says, well, why don't we get married? And 20 minutes later, they were in the courthouse getting hitched. So first of all, they must have been dancing at the disco at like 1 p.m. Right. Yeah. Because they would have had to make it to the courthouse before five. Yeah. Right. So they're doing like a like an early matinee. So uh, I don't. Discotheking. Yeah. I mean, I think it might have just been an episode of. Booze, broads, and booty <laughs> that led to the union of one Bobby Ewing. Oh, well, then that throws another wrinkle And Pamela there. Barnes. Yeah, because is Pam Barnes there for an escort of sorts that j- just happened to get involved with Bobby? I don't know. I mean, we know in this episode that she got around with one of the farmhands, well, the, right? Yeah, yeah. And Pam gets around. I mean, let's let's not beat around. And I had never heard of Victoria Principal before, but she is gorgeous. And total snack show. I did a little bit of Wikipedia research Mm. 10 minutes ago. And just so you (laughs) know, this is hard hitting in depth (laughs) journalism we have going on the Y Shot JR podcast. (laughs) She did appear nude in Playboy. Oh, yeah, that was a big deal. 
Yes, I, I, I totally remember that. I, I believe... You were like four when that happened, but okay. Yeah, I, no, but... <laughs> things, Other things that were inappropriate things, for your Things age. still get around among <laughs> kids. Even among though you don't preschool? see them, you still kind of know that things oh, I'm just have happened. I, I believe... I believe the, the woman who plays Lucy, uh, Charlene Tilton... Uh, did the same thing, but I'm not positive. Ooh. I have to check on that. All right. So beginning of the episode, they're hitched full service gas station, having breakfast. Where do we go from here? Mr. B the ride back home, the riding home to yeah. South Fork. So they get home to South Fork. Yeah. And, uh, they get out of the car. Miss Ellie played by the, uh, the great Barbara Bogettis. Uh, I love her. Yeah. She's great. She, she always talks like, She's she's got something a, a little bit keistered, but she's a redeeming <laughs> character on the show. Like she's she's good people. I, I I think we're supposed to always feel with Miss Ellie that she's kind of caught in an impossible situation, and as a woman of that era, she's simply trying to make the best of what she can do, and her yeah. choices are sort of limited. Well, and in I, order to maintain her position and maintain the family name and the legacy and all of that kind of aristocratic sort of etiquette stuff and yeah. all of that, there's just so, only so much she's going to be able to do. They continue like that's so much in like all kinds of movies. I could come up with examples off the top of my head, even like Fiddler on the Roof, like the whole idea of arranged marriage just like everything in film, but is very romanticized. And, sure. and the, the character she plays and with jock, like he's, you know, he's in this too, but that maybe it was sort of an arranged marriage to save some land and whatever, but that they grew to love each other. Oh yeah. I think they, they're, they're totally uh, bonded at this point. But in it's their, so in weird that he calls her Miss Ellie. Like, She's yeah, your that's, wife. That's you just could super just creepy. call her Ellie or yeah, I mean, honey. This is a total something. Mike Pence situation where he calls his wife mom <laughs> or mother. Stop. No, that's that's serious. He does. He he calls his wife mother. And this you has been totally get a bee in your bonnet when I refer to you as dad. Side note, we went to Disney World. I had family shirts name. Everybody had their name on their shirt, but it just said dad. It's fine to call me dad. In the presence of our children, and it was an accident, which is what makes because that so it's, funny. It's just this—it's just the kind of simple shortcut way to address somebody. When it's just me and you, and you would be and calling I don't me dad call you, or father, I call you daddy sometimes. I mean, you know, I mean, our vice president—he <laughs> he bypasses even the informal mom. He goes straight to mother to uh, refer to his wife, which is just just totally normal. Just totally normal. <laughs> As normal as the crap we're going to discuss in this this show yeah. happening. Yeah. So so anyway, Jacques and Miss Ellie are the patriarch and matriarch of this Ewing South Worth. Is that her maiden name? South Worth. Yes. Okay, and it's the South Fork Ranch. I always get that confused. Correct. Okay. So anyway, they're they're the uh, the 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 two heads here. Jacques is retired. He's turned the business over to JR. And it's funny in these early episodes how you see this with a lot of TV shows where they don't really know what they got in the first 
few episodes or maybe even the first season. And so the dynamic that actually becomes the thing that everybody identifies with happens much later. I, I'm thinking of like in Breaking Bad, the relationship of that show is between Walter and Jesse. Yep. Right? Yep. It's not Walter and his family. It's not it's Walter, not Walter and, his and his brother-in-law. No, yeah. no. It's Walter and Jesse. That is the hook, the crux, Gosh, the no, tension, watch it. the drama, all of the stuff that makes Breaking the tears, Bad the, great. Yeah, yeah, all of it. And with Dallas, what we come to see is that the real meat of the show, the real nitty-gritty good stuff is JR in all of his shenanigans and JR's conflict with Cliff. Cliff yep. Barnes. Uh-oh. Cliff Barnes. Hmm. Where have I heard that last name before? Well, it turns out Cliff Barnes, who is the enemy of the Ewings, which is a saga that we'll have to tell over many, many episodes because it's sort of complicated, is the brother of Pamela Barnes. Yep. Newlywed wife to Bobby Ewing. And in this this first episode, when they're driving into... South Fork Ranch at the same time J.R. Ewing is in his office downtown in Dallas and he's groping a secretary groping his secretary but while <laughs> groping his eyes are glued to the television set where Cliff Barnes is acting like Perry Mason doing some questioning uh, yeah, of he's, someone he's about the legal counsel for the Texas state legislature. Yeah. Some kind of illegal oil stuff, which right. huh, sounds familiar. 30 right. some years sure. later. <laughs> sure. I, I can't believe that kind of thing would, would rate uh, being broadcast on TV during the daytime. Uh, unless there's some Texas version of C-SPAN, but anyway, I guess I was wondering about convention. that too. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, whatever. That was convenient. You know, I guess I guess it makes for better uh, drama than just having him reading a newspaper and you know reading a quote or whatever. But nevertheless, a little odd. But it sets the stage of the conflict to come, which is that Cliff Barnes has a real hard on for getting the Ewings, for putting them in jail, for. Breaking up their business. oil dynasty, yeah. well, whole thing. However he can get to them. The reason is we come to find out, and we don't actually find this out much in this first episode. Do we want to say what it is? Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, we'll elaborate on it as as we go on. But uh, uh, the Barnes father, his name is Digger, and hence the title Digger's Daughter, referring to Pamela. Digger, I guess, at some point was in business with Jacques Ewing way back when, during the Depression era. And as he tells it, Jacques Ewing sort of screwed him over on their first big oil strike. Yeah, they were both wildcatters. They were both wildcatters in the Texas oil fields. Jacques Ewing and Digger strike it big. Um... Digger has an alcohol problem. Jacques doesn't trust him with the money. He draws up all of the contracts and paperwork that basically squeezes Digger out of his share of the company. And Digger forevermore is resentful of that. Uh, he never makes it big. He never 
uh, strikes it rich again. And, and they become the Hatfields and McCoys. Right, it's the Hatfields and McCoys. Of the Dallas right. oil. There we go. And so this, therefore, is the essential conflict of Pamela Barnes now marrying into the Ewing clan the, that they feel they've got a traitor in their midst. Yeah, and Bobby seems like... Even though this is a decades old generational feud, he almost appears to be caught off guard that everybody's yeah. so pissed he's like, what? that he's married to Pam. She's what? my wife. Like, what did you expect, you dummy? Yeah, I, I don't understand that about his character either. Like, he acts completely like caught off guard and taken aback by why anyone would have a problem <laughs> with this sort of enemy of the Ewings who's out to, you know, get them however he can, that his sister is now married into their clan. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I I could see how they would be a little bit put out by that. And why Bobby doesn't realize that is very strange. But I I do I I get the feeling that Bobby's not the brightest bulb. Let's just say that. I don't know. I don't know about that, but I, I have to say that Pam is pretty innocent in it all. Like at oh, least yeah. what I've seen so far of the show. And by the way, I have not seen past the second season. Just so all three of the people listening to our podcast know that <laughs> um, I've only seen the first two seasons. And up to this point though, Pammy, as he likes to call her. Oh, God, that name. Is at least that does fade, but yeah, Pammy is innocent in it all. She is, she has no ulterior motives. I think it was just his hair, and she couldn't say no. She just had to marry him after they were clubbing at 1 p.m. and doing hair like that. I mean, you're gonna swoon, you know, know. so she just couldn't help herself. But she's not, she's not a bad guy. No, no, I I think her heart's always in the right place. She seems to be, as much as there can be in a show about despicable people, the kind of moral center of this show. And Bobby's right there with her. I mean, he starts this episode with the whole booze, broads, and booty, and, like, he's this kind of disgusting um, fixer. He's a a playboy. Well, but he's more than that. Like... Yeah, Playboy pimp. I mean, he's, and, yeah. But anyhow, I think that, like, he, maybe he just follows Pammy's lead as they become, they become the so moral she's good compass for, him. for the show. She is. She kind of saves him. She's good for the whole damn family. Yeah, he, he's a bad boy. He's a bad boy, and he just needed the love of a good woman. Yes. Right. Yeah. That is exactly. Because that's the way it goes, you know. That's that's real life, folks. Where yeah. I came that's, from, right? That's real life, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... That is pretty much all of the A plot is the various Ewing folk in their own way, either coming to terms with the fact that they now have this enemy in their midst in the form of Pamela Barnes, a.k.a. Pamela Ewing, or trying to figure out how they can get the whole thing annulled. Or I think there's a little bit of like... Because Jock says maybe that's not the right approach when JR's working towards that annulment idea. I think there's a little bit of like, or how can we use this to our advantage? How can we keep 
our enemies closer kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think Jacques is definitely got a sort of a Machiavellian streak in him, and he comes to terms with it pretty quickly and then tries to figure out how he can play an angle where this could turn out uh, in their favor in the long term. Right. And I, I think I think uh, JR is a little bit slow on that um, scheme. But he so, gets there. Yeah, he, he will get there eventually, but JR's first instinct is always kind of in the gutter. Yep. And so what JR does is basically rig up this whole scheme, this plan uh, to make it look as if Pamela is already cheating on Bobby with the hunk of hunk of ranch hand. Ray. Ray Krebs. And uh, before we sort of get into what that scheme is, I think it's time to probably talk about good old Ray. The Ewings are trying to figure out how Bobby and Pam got together, like where this romance came from. Everyone's caught off guard by their whole rendezvous and elopement in New Orleans. Right. And so J.R. and Ray are having this conversation. Ray's like, well, maybe when she was my date at a couple of parties here at South Fork, her and Bobby were being friendly. Mm-hmm. Ding, 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 ding. So Ray and Pam have a history. They were an item. They yep. were an item. And Ray, when we, well, actually we need to address this because when we first started watching this show mm-hmm. in my narcotic induced haste, I still remember you saying to me that, Oh, that's Ray. He's one of the good guys in the show. Ray's a good guy. And the first Because he was my favorite when I was a kid. He was my favorite. Well, ooh, because the first (laughs) scene where we see Ray Krebs' face, Uh, I can't even say it. He's he's up in a loft. In the hayloft. He's up in the hayloft on the the Ewing property uh, with um, underage uh, Lucy. Yep, Lucy, the daughter... Of the middle Ewing brother. The middle Ewing brother, Gary. Who's the black sheep and run out of town, the right. whole thing. Yeah. Um, but Lucy got, got is being raised. Pregnant. Yeah. Lucy's being raised by her grandparents, Jock and Miss Ellie, the sweet Miss Ellie. And she's like, I mean, she's in high school. It's the end of the second season before she ever starts driving. So she's maybe 16. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good guess. Probably 16, maybe 16, close to 17. And I don't know how old Ray is, but he looks like he's 40. (laughs) This is so great because we actually had the conversation before the podcast uh, about Ray's age. And you brought it up, I think, in uh, kind of in jest about how he's what? I said 42. Yeah, 42. That's my best guess. So I looked up Steve Canale's uh, entry in uh, Wikipedia. You want to revise your... Uh, guess on his age, actual age at the time of filming first episode of Dallas. So I'm going to guess he's younger than that, but I stand by my assessment that he looks like he's 40 plus. As people did. How old was he? He was 32. Okay. Okay. Still twice her age. I don't even care that I'm off by a decade. He's still a decade and a half older no, no, it, than this it, character. And it, it's, it's gross. To- it's totally cringe. As the youngsters say, it's I mean, totally cringe. Do they say that? I, I don't know. That's what R says. So I'm assuming. 
our 10 year old, <laughs> the real youngsters. Um, but yeah, so word of note, Josh and I have an eight year age difference. And when we met, we were 21 and 29. Indeed. Right? Yeah. yeah. Had to think a minute. Seven and a half years, but who's going <laughs> Says the older of the two. But had we met when I was, say, uh, 16 and you were 24, that would have been gross. And this is even a bigger age gap. Not, not just gross. Like, it's gross, ew, but illegal? Uh, yeah, so... You know, I guess we have two choices. Uh, one, we can retroactively me too. Right. Right. We can just sort of uh, say, uh, ick. And um, yeah. See where it goes. That stuff cause... all takes on a different lens in the era of me too. And I think that's a good thing. I think we should see those things and call them for what they are now. I think, I think the years when we could just collectively turn our heads and say, eh, that's kind of icky. Uh, that's over. So, and I think it also serves a purpose because we need to look at these people as disgusting. The way they behave in so many ways um, isn't unlike the very rich. Like that's, uh, that's kind uh, of the whole crux uh, of the show. Paging Jeffrey Epstein, paging <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. Ah. <laughs> uh, and all of his clients. Well, you know, it's an important conversation on two fronts. Yes, I, I think in the in the in the light of day of where we are in the present moment of 2020, this is absolutely beyond the pale. This sort of relationship between a man in his 30s and a girl who's 16 years old. I think it's also important to remember that. Up until around 1980 in some states, um, you could not legally be tried for rape of your wife. In a lot right, of states. right. And still so, so, so much work to do on, on this front um, of women's rights and supporting women and supporting victims and call, you know, calling victims for what they were like we are still referring to the victims of Jeffrey Epstein as underage prostitutes, which does not exist. They are victims of rape. Right. Absolutely. You know, so like that language, that underage prostitute language is, is cringy. Um, it, you know, like it's, it's important. All I'm saying is it's important that we call it what it is and that we, don't just turn our heads and say, hmm, that's uncomfortable because that's what decades and decades and centuries of oppression has looked like. Me too. Yeah, I, I think I think you just have to have clear eyes when you're talking about past history and not try to sugarcoat things. Right. And, so, and the thing is, this went on a lot. And, uh, you know, something I did for this podcast, because I knew we were going to talk about this, is actually look up age of consent laws. Uh, it is 17 in Texas. Okay. And up until 2017, uh, when the governor actually signed a new law, a girl in Texas could actually be married at any age if a judge consented to it. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, and so there's stories of 12-year-old girls, 14-year-old girls makes, being like, married. The, arm, the hairs on my arms. They're, they're because their mothers essentially or their parents arranging these marriages, uh, wh- which Miss we'll get Ellie into. and Jock. Exactly. And I think more to the point uh, is... Um, oh, yeah. JR uh, and yeah. Mary Ellen. That's not uh, it. Su- Sue, Sue Ellen. Ellen. Sue Ellen's sister. Yeah. If you remember the way that Sue Ellen's well, even Sue mother Ellen acts about Sue Ellen's sister and how she's constantly talking about a pimp. Right. And she's constantly trying to marry her off to a rich man. And she's clearly probably underage too, or yeah. at very least she's probably just turned 18, 18. or 19. Yeah. Like this was a, a dynamic that was going on. Yeah. Um. So this is an ancient history folks. This was 2017. That this law was changed, saying that you could not get married at all until you were at least 16 years of age in the state of Texas. That didn't happen until three years ago. And that's just crazy. Yeah. So just nuts. So I think the other cringeworthy, we've said the word cringe a lot. Somebody should do a drinking game where they take a drink every well, we are time drinking, we say so, that. We yeah, are. I'll take a drink to that. Um, but a little Pinot Grigio. Yeah, we're having some Pinot Grigio because we a little bougie. But anyway, so the other part that makes this even worse is how kind of out in the open and and like the Ray and Lucy thing and Lucy's whole sexuality is very like known and celebrated at an age of inappropriate level. She's what Um, would have been called jailbait. Yeah. Right. She would have been on Girls on Wild. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, totally. So spring breaking, spring break. Yeah, that doesn't even. Do they even do MTV Spring Break anymore? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Singled out. Oh my gosh, I loved watching Singled Out. Yeah, I I I, I enjoyed those shows too back in the day. Yeah, for different reasons. But when we were rewatching the first episode in preparation to do the podcast. I started paying a little closer attention to some of the things that didn't catch that had caught my eye, but I needed to dive a little deeper on anyway. So this first introduction to Ray Krebs, Jock Ewing is coming in looking for him, right? Yeah, it's Jock. Right. And so Jock's down on the first level of the barn and he's trying to tell him about this whole scandal with Bobby bringing home that barns girl. Right. And Ray comes down from the hayloft. He like tosses a bale of hay down to make it look all innocent. Yeah, stuff. L- that he's actually doing s- some kind work. of le- legitimate work instead yeah. of just uh, porking the underage girl in the hayloft. Banging the, the young girl who should be at school. That's how I said porking. And while the, he's, I, I did. Retro term. Yeah. Porking. Yeah. Right. So he hops down and Jock starts talking to him, but he's coming in there to talk to him about Bobby and Pam. But he sidebars to say, like, oh, did you take Lucy to school today? And it made me think, because Lucy's in the hayloft still, like, putting her bra back on. It makes me wonder, did Jock know? And that was his, like, I know what you're doing. I think this is probably a good, like, accurate um, portrayal of what these sort of dynastic... Blue blood. Well, I mean, these people are nouveau riche, but the whole idea is that with this kind of money and this kind of 
power and and this in the public eye, so to speak. You know these things are going on, but you have to kind of keep up a pretense at all times about these things and keep them hidden, mm. swept under the rug. We could go like really I think both of them right here. I think they know. I think I think Maselli knows. knows. I think Jacques knows. I think Jr. I, probably knows. I don't know if Jr. knows. I mean, they know that Lucy's wild. They might not know that Ray specifically, but they yeah. know that Lucy's yeah wild. And from a parenting standpoint, we didn't say this in our intros, but we've got two little kids, ten year old and almost five year old. And I firmly believe we were also foster parents for some years and. I think one of the things that can cause the most trauma to kids as far as like well-intentioned good parents is trying to do just that, like keeping up the pretenses because the message you send to your kids is that like really the only thing that's important is what everybody thinks about us. Yes. And we know how quickly people's opinions of anyone can change. And it sets your kids on this trajectory for like always seeking approval from other people, not having approval from other people being like the worst possible thing that could ever happen. Sure. And I I think this is such a damaging thing to do. So that's like the really serious side of this cringy stuff too. We're getting heavy folks. We are getting heavy. Indeed getting heavy. Because you get me to talking about like hurting my babies and <laughs> the mama bear comes out. But seriously, you've got to like, like, I think it's important even in such like a stupid, like, let me just watch it because it's fun and I don't really have to think about anything while I'm recovering from surgery show. It's good to find these kind of things that you can like apply to your life, apply to your own history. And, and I don't know. Why, why else watch anything? Yeah. You know? And unfortunately, I mean, if, it's, if it's just going to bounce off of you, like, you know, like a rubber ball, like and yeah. just, you're not going to absorb any of it or it doesn't ha- resonate with you in any way, then really what's the point? You know, yeah, go outside, take a walk. A lot of other things you can do other than watch, you know, people like me to each other and, and, and drink booze morning, noon and night. <laughs> oh, by, by the way, uh, we're going to keep a, an official drink count uh, for the Why Shot Jr. podcast, uh, episode by episode, because uh, folks, they do a lot of drinking here. I'm oh, just I thought say, you meant us, and I'm looking. Well, at no, our we're, we're drinking too. Bottle of wine. I, I'm just saying all of the instances of drinking <laughs> per episode. This one's a pretty light count. We just got basically one time when they're all sitting around uh, at the cocktail hour, and Miss Ellie, of course, says we can't talk business during the cocktail hour. For reasons unknown, I was not really sure on why. It's just inappropriate, Joshua. Yeah, it's it's inappropriate when you're when you're all getting schnockered with the seventeen year old lounging By on the, the chaise way, like she's some Roman goddess. She is laying on the. I back don't even understand of the couch. how it's possible what she's doing. She's laying on the scene. back of the couch. Which, first of all, this actress, if you've never seen it, if you don't know anything about her, and I didn't until I watched this, but she's like. How tall is she? Four foot nine or something? About four ten, four eleven. Yeah, like she's, she's itty tiny. bitty, but she is perched on the back of the couch like our cat does. Yeah, um, she's literally laying there like a sphinx in a pose on like the back of the couch. She should be in a nudie mag. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, and everybody is is basically you know getting lit all around her. Miss Ellie says, "Of course, we can't talk about important matters." <laughs> 
Right. Well, I have here. to say too, like the hypersexualization. <laughs> drunk and then her seventeen-year-olds like sprawled out like she's. But on we're a, not like completely Neanderthals. We can't talk about business. Yeah, the, you know that would be uncouth. <laughs> so the hypersexualization of this Lucy character. It's I mean, pretty off the rails, especially but it's in these just early the episodes. precursor for like toddlers and tiaras and oh, yeah. and the dance stuff. Like I'm not saying anything bad about your daughter in hip hop or jazz or ballet class, but like the shows where they're like doing all the sexy poses and they oh, yeah. have the makeup, like lots of makeup and like. Yeah, her character is totally what uh, Jean Benet Ramsey would have grown up into. Yes, basically. Like, and that's and that's what like we're not saying pageants are bad. We don't want hate mail from the three people that are listening. <laughs> well, maybe four, four, or maybe people. two. Maybe we lost one. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Anyway, um, we're not saying any of this is bad, but we all know that children can be hypersexualized in some situations now and it was still happening then like that's not new no it's it's a a, a tale as old as time as they say yeah tale as old as time so yeah so good stuff lucy's laying there everybody's getting drunk cocktail hour and this is a thing um at the house and also we haven't even gone here they all live in the same house yeah it's so weird it's the uh, probably the Next to the Ray Lucy thing, the biggest ick factor of the whole Dallas saga is the fact that they all feel the need to live right on top of it's each like, other. We're talking multiple generations. Yeah. Two adult sons, the right. granddaughter. Right. The spouses. And the spouses. And they all have cocktails every night. I mean, they are classy enough that they don't like give Lucy a cocktail. He does steal <laughs> some occasionally, but... Um, at least they're not pouring it for her and they have cocktail hour. Then they have their servants that like set the table and serve them dinner, um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner actually every night. And I, I just don't know if yeah, this the really are exists. Hard, folks. They, they really, they're in, in their keep. Like, like, does this it. exist in the real world? Do people actually live like that? Well, nobody that will ever know lives like that, but I assume, oh. I assume that there are. Well, I don't know. I follow a whole People bunch of like kind of movie and TV stars on Instagram and I see them cooking their own food. I see them getting their own eggs from their chickens. Jennifer Garner. I see Reese Witherspoon walking her own dog. Yeah, but you know, you got to think, well, why are you seeing that? Is there a reason? It's on Instagram. It's real life. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think anytime you see a celebrity pretending to be like the real folk, uh, it's because they've got a press agent whispering in their ear saying, um, "You're this so would be, jaded. This would be really good for your image if you mm. behave this way." Uh, and you know they might like to cook. I guarantee you, they probably are not cooking their own meals seven days a week. Let me just say that, okay? I like to think that they are. I mean, who knows? I don't cook my own meals seven days a week either, but I don't have service. Reese Witherspoon might be a real mensch. She might be out there. <laughs> she is good people. And I, I love her I, book I, club. No, no, no disrespect to, to Reese. But I'm just saying as a general rule of thumb, 
if you got that kind of money, you're living in million dollar, multi million dollar uh, estate houses, mansions, what have you. Uh, there, there's somebody slinging the hash, and it ain't you. All right, all right. So anyhow, um, they've got they like these are common things that happen every single episode: cocktail hour, meals being served to everyone. Um, Bobby, that's when, when they're at this cocktail hour actually is when Bobby tells them the whole love story, the whole 20 minute love story of him and Pam. And, um, nobody's too happy about it either. No, I don't know. I think Miss Ellie is, I think Miss Ellie, because of what we've talked about with how she became a Ewing. Well, I guess we didn't even get into that, but what we're going to find out is that before, her and Jacques were an item. She actually. I don't know if I know this. Was in love with, with Digger Barnes. I don't know if I knew that. Yeah. 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 I yeah. forgot. Yeah. L- later on when, when uh, we, we get to know more about uh, Digger, he, he says that, you know, the, the other so, reason why he can't stand Jacques and he's. It's because he stole Miss Ellie. because he stole the love of his But life. really what it sounds like to me is that Miss Ellie's dad was just sitting around waiting to see which wildcatter hit it big to come save the ranch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was on the sidelines seeing who, you know, which which team could uh, Not push, push she, the ball. Over it was the her dad that well, set the whole yeah, thing okay, up. Well, yeah, okay, her dad, yeah. Right. And I mean, I'm not saying Jock Ewing is like a great person. We've already put that out there, but He's a man's man. Digger I, Barnes is an alcoholic and like doesn't have a pot to pee in. So as far as that goes, I think she came out okay in the deal. Uh, uh, strictly speaking on the on the finances, yeah, Jacques was the was the better choice. Uh, being married to an alcoholic couldn't be easy. I'm just saying, <laughs> it's not no. just financial. No, 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 no. That would have been a hard road to hoe. So yeah, she made her choice. Probably was the right choice. Nevertheless, it's created this uh, interminable. F- Hatfield and McCoy feud uh, between uh, Digger and Jacques, which is carrying on down to the next generation of Cliff Barnes and Jr. And that's pretty much the kind of essential conflict that animates the whole show as it really gets rolling in season two and three, leading up to the uh, notorious Who Shot Jr. Climax at the end of season, which I've never three, seen. I'm really where everybody excited. thinks Cliff is probably has to be the one who did it. Dum 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 dum. Cliffhanger. Uh, yeah, stop speaking because I haven't seen it and I'm invested now. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll get to that uh, gears down the road, literally, because uh, we're talking uh, at the end of season three. So we're about forty some episodes away from that. So. The Pam is trying to like find a way to fit in the, with this family. I mean, an endearing quality that she and Bobby both have is that they're committed to this marriage. Honestly, seems kind of weird. Um, they they seem to have way more history than we're ever told. They're like super familiar with each other in ways that like you're usually not with someone that you had this whirlwind kind of romance with. Yeah. Like they're like, they seem like they've dated for a long time. Right. Right. Yeah. 
Um, or maybe it does work like that for other couples. I, I don't know. know. Took us years to get there. Right. So anyhow, it's just interesting. I don't know if that's like just their writing and and a decision or not a decision, but just kind of what happened for somebody as they were developing the story or if it's intentional. Maybe there is more of a story there that we just don't know um, and have to kind of fill in the blanks. But Pam's trying to find some way to fit into all of this. And I think it's also important. I feel that Miss Ellie definitely has a preference for Bobby. Like she knows well, he's the baby. Well, I think it's more than that. I think that in her impossible position, yeah, she kind of has to go along with everything, but she also knows that JR's. Oh, she knows JR awful. is just a snake in the grass. Just a total snake. I mean, from what I've seen on the show, I think that he would totally throw his own mama under the bus, and she has to know that. Like, if it came down to it. Um, yeah, I, I sometimes wonder about that. If if Where JR's uh, threshold for uh, moral... I think there is one person... Action I wanna, is... I want you to see if you can guess what person I think it is, or if we would think it's the same person. But I think there's one person on the show that he would actually, like go to the ends of the earth. For, I, I don't know if he'd go to the ends of the earth for anybody, but like he would actually put himself in some moderate discomfort to take care of. Who do you think that person is? I don't know. My guess is his father, but I don't know. No, Lucy. You think? Oh, okay. I think he loves and wants to protect Lucy. I think he really genuinely does. And you see that as like she gets in some trouble and stuff in a few episodes. But well, OK, so I think the reason why you're saying that is because. When Lucy gets her turn at at trying to run Pam off, she goes through the whole spiel of how it is she came to be at South Fork. And the yep. whole story is essentially that Jr. was overcome with rage and paternal uh, affection both uh and when gary the middle brother uh, got the 15 year old knocked up um they got married and came back and all lived on the ranch the three of them for a short while yep and then it looked like it wasn't going to work out jr i Gary I, left town. I don't think JR's motivations are entirely honest here. I think it, this was sort of looking like it was going to be a stain upon the family name. Mm. Something that might uh, have some blowback as far as business goes. And therefore, when Gary ran off, it was just going to be easier to write out the mom from the picture. But wait, you're skipping some things. So okay. Gary ran off first. Right. Mom and Lucy were still there. Yeah. Mom decided she wanted like to make her own way because uh, she was like 15 and had a baby. So she decided she wanted to like make something. And then she left with Lucy separately. It wasn't the three of them left together. No, 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 no. Yeah. So Gary left Gary and left mom left in another direction. Right. But then Jr. hires some thugs to essentially. In Virginia. Go after them. They track them down in Virginia, according to Lucy's story. Again, Lucy's a bit of a liar, so we don't really know how much of this is actually true. Um, maybe we come to find out some things later on. Um, but anyway, these thugs sort of essentially tell tell the mom to get out of Lucy's life. They take Lucy back home. <laughs> Basically, we're talking about 
I don't want a child napping. I guess maybe they forced her to sign some kind of document signing over parental rights. That's well, never really talked that about. She, Lucy said that she even tried to have the law come get her. Mm. And the police weren't even able to do anything about it because that's how powerful Jr. is. I don't know. I I can't imagine because it's not like that woman was trying to extort anything from them or anything. That's one, not part of the story that we're ever told Two, It seems to me like if she's going from Texas to Virginia, like she's trying to get away, she doesn't want, and they could have just let them right off into the sunset. I think it's this like weird thing that Jr. I think she is the one other family member on the show that he would at this point, at least. Well, that's an interesting theory. I mean, he is, he is a little sort of paternal, I guess, and how he acts towards her. Yeah. So. And he, he tries to kind of protect her and things and stuff. And, and it's the only time in this first like season and most of the second season that He's just not completely gross. And it took me a long time to wrap my mind around like the guy from I Dream a Genie is this really horrible person. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, 180 in terms of uh, a character from uh, Larry Hagman's character in I Dream of Genie. There's no doubt about it. So, one of the great villains of all time. Lucy's warning to. Pam, though, is like if Jr. telling that whole story about what happened with her mom, that um, if Jr. doesn't want you here, you don't have a chance. She actually says right. it like three oh, times. Yeah. Lady, you ain't got a chance. Yes. And and that's towards the end of the episode. But I think Pam is really just trying to find some kind of foothold, like some something to do to stay in the family. And so she's looking to Bobby for a lot of that reassurance. Yeah. And, the, and then she, she looks to the women of the household. They kind of reject her when they're setting the table. Not the women dinner. plural don't. Well, Sue Ellen does. Sue Ellen definitely Sue Ellen does. does. Yeah. Sue Ellen presents her. And that doesn't stop. No, that's always ongoing. It's, it's sort of battle of the baby feud. Is basically what we get and it, between and, Sue and that and gets Pam. set up in this very first episode because as much as she's yeah, it's a race to who can have the uh, the, the heir, the, the first male offspring, basically is what Ugh, we're talking also about. Also, early season drink. Um, but anyhow, as as she's trying to like make everybody happy and make them like her and whatever. First of all, I just keep thinking like, go rent your own apartment. <laughs> You don't have to get live. out of there. Yeah. You don't have to live down the hall you from leave? your in-laws who don't want you. Yeah, you don't need a hall pass. Just go. So you can weird. just walk out of the classroom. Just get, get in your Ewing Ford license plate car and go. <laughs> Which we haven't talked about the disparity between the cars. I don't think it's come up yet, but we'll save that for the episode when we see um, Sue Ellen first driving around in her Woody station wagon. Oh yeah. It's great. Compared to Pam's, like, it's, Mercedes It's a total family ties kind of car. Whatever. That, that for some reason, she's driving. It's from family ties. <laughs> so anyway, um, in all of this effort that she's making to make them like her, she's not shy about having their honeymoon down the hall from her in-laws. No, and they're, they're pretty enthusiastically getting it on um, to the extent that Jacques and JR can hear them 
Yep. While they're out having a smoke and having a bourbon. Having a smoke by the pool. And they're making jokes about the sounds of Pam and Bobby and how JR, Jock even tells JR, you need to hurry up and put a bun yeah. in that oven yeah, because right. yeah. they're going to beat you to yeah. it. Can't to, you hear? To, time's a wasting because as you can hear upstairs, we got some baby making activity currently transpiring on the South Fork Ranch. And that's, of course, when uh, Jacques utters the famous line about how essentially his youngest son uh, was a pimp. And maybe it was a good idea that he's not on the road, uh, you know, whoring politicians. Because what did he like. say? That wasn't PR. That was pimping or something exactly. like that. Exactly. <laughs> That's pr- pretty much the exact quote. From, oh, the from, simpler times. From Jacques. Mr. Mr. Jim Davis. Anyway, I ain't so sure it's a bad thing. You're not. Well, you've seen what's happening. Bobby wanting to come in off the road, be an executive. What's wrong with that? A PR is important. Pepping, that's what it is. I got nothing against him settling down and taking on a little responsibility. Uh, so, in uh, the episode, the big climax here of episode one is that we've got this whole setup between J.R. and Ray to make it look like Pamela and Ray are having an affair because they had a thing in the past, as we come to learn. And how this is set up is absolutely... Ridiculous. Yeah, redonkulous, let's say. They take a helicopter ride. Then they decide... Ray just decides to land in the middle of nowhere out in the South Fork Back 40. By the cow's watering hole. Yeah, which you think about this for 10 seconds. Gross. It's really gross. They walk out on the pier. Uh, Ray makes a comment about how, I guess, when Pamela was in her wilder days, she would have just jumped in. By the way, folks, you can see their breath in this whole episode. It is cold. It's got to be freezing. And he keeps, like, looking at his watch. Looking around. Yeah, because they're timing the whole thing. Yeah, like you can tell Pam in her sweet little innocent self doesn't catch on to any of this, thinks that they're truly just trying to make her feel welcome because that's all she's wanted. Yeah, and her naivete in this is just... Absurd. It's a little incredible. So um, the other part of the plot is that Jr. has told Bobby he's got to leave right now to yeah, go the, get on a plane. The, the, right. The, they essentially got to go on a pimping trip to Austin. Yep. And his pimping days were supposed to be over, but this is the last one. Everybody promises. Right. So JR's yeah, w- w- taking One last him ride to the, the capital to... Uh, the pimp mobile. F- find some whores for some state senators. They need and to so out. he's driving. JR is driving Bobby to the airport. They're leaving. But all of a sudden, he forgets something, and he has to turn around and come back. Well, as they're turning around, uh, what's his face? Ray yeah. picks up Pam, and he's like, well, didn't want to have to do this, and grabs her and jumps in the knee-deep, stagnant water full of cow dung. Yeah, the, the cow watering hole here on the ranch. Yeah. And we're, we're talking February, March. Mm-hmm. It may be Texas, but whew. cold as hell. I mean, and they stand up, they're soaking wet, and she's laughing. Oh, you're so silly. Oh, my goodness. Which is another like 
you know, like how the boys pick on you if they like you. Like, that's what that is. Oh, yeah. Right. And he's like, well, I live right over here. Here's my house. <laughs> Here's let's my just, convenient one room log cabin. Let's just go in here and I'll right get you warmed up left. and make you some coffee by the fire. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. What, Completely what, platonic. But we do need to take off these wet things. Yes. Can't mm. stay in the wet clothes. Well, we don't want to catch, you know, catch our death here. Catch pneumonia. Right. We need, we need to get the fire going. Get out of these wet things and into a dry martini, as it were. <laughs> and so when the camera shows them inside the house, I'm trying to remember Pam. I mean, I guess we're supposed to assume she's naked. All you can see is her oh, like yeah. bundled totally up in a blanket. But he has clothes on, right? Well, Does he don't have a shirt on. Right. He's 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 studding he's it. He's studding it. Yeah. He's showing us the the 32, 42 the, year old the, the chest hair. Oh, yeah. He's a good looking dude. No, I'll st- give him that much. yeah. You're a little too enthusiastic. Hunka hunka. <laughs> so Steve Canale. They're like having coffee by the fire. Pam's naked. Cause I would do that. You know, only been married for like 36 hours, but I'll just go get naked with somebody I've been naked with before under different totally normal thing to do. Yeah, totally normal. So Pam. With hearing like a bat, mm, yes. here's this completely out of sight. Yeah, supersonic hearing. Yeah, car pulling up. Right, a nice family sedan and that who Jr. Is, driving. is it, folks? Jr. with Bobby, and she's on to it. Her naivete ends. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like all of a sudden something like snaps in her brain. She thinks, "Oh, wait a minute. This wasn't all innocent all the time." Like, it's like she didn't yeah. think of that when he was asking her to me. take her clothes off. Yeah. Right. <laughs> It wasn't until her husband's driving up on like the Like, how scene. many clues do you have to trip over in the course of this whole before setup one just before smacks you, you in the head? Finally realize what was up the whole time. And it's not like she's coming into this blind. Everybody in the family's been telling her to get out for the whole episode, right? Yeah. Why all of a sudden does anybody change their mind? And JR set it up by saying, Pammy, we know this has been so hard on you. Just let Ray take you on a helicopter ride and show you around the ranch. Like, two minutes ago, he was asking you how much money it would take for you to leave. Ray he's literally trying to buy her out. Yeah. Less, less than 24 hours before. Like, maybe 10 hours before. Pam has some growing to do. So, anyway. And that. she does. I mean, honestly, she's, she's good people. So, they're pulling up. She hears them. And she tells Ray how he better handle this situation when they walk in. Yeah. So she's like, if you don't tell him that this was innocent and nothing was happening here, then I'm going to tell everybody about you and Lucy. You and Lucy. And that probably more than anything is the biggest ick factor because what it then does is take the character of Pamela and make her into a kind of uh, accomplice. Yeah, like she's in the know that this whole underage, yeah, because she's seen rape that. stuff is happening. That like the statutory rape is occurring, right? 
But she's and she's going to use it as basically as like a trump card to have in her deck anytime, which is really uncharacteristic of her. I mean, I have to say this is like a flaw in the writing. Yes. Like if she is this completely innocent, like good person, which she really is. Yeah, for the most part, that doesn't fit like that doesn't jive with who she is. At her moral center. Well, I'm just trying to think of from a writerly perspective. What would have been the other way to go? Well, I think you could have used Pam and Ray's history and like her saying. Just not knowing about it, maybe that Pamela doesn't know about Ray and Lucy. Yeah, like she doesn't have to know about that, but she can say, Ray, you have to tell them that this was innocent. Like, you know me. If you really ever cared about me, yeah, you're not gonna do this right now. Yeah, so it's not it's not a leverage thing. It's yeah, just, it's I think just that would have like fit her character appealing to better. his his better angels, which he actually has. I yes, mean, well, it turns like, out he, he becomes does a better on. person. I I don't know though, man. Can you be a good person if you're doing stuff like that? Like, are there really enough good things you could ever do to make statutory rape? You know, uh, one interesting thing I I found out is that apparently the actor who played Ray, Steve Canale, uh, didn't really like what his character was in this first sort of five episode season, which was actually staged as a a mini series. They didn't know this was actually going to be a show. It was just one of those uh, late in the TV season kind of time slot fillers. And so they made it a five episode mini series and it it caught on and they renewed it and the rest was history, but he didn't really like his character. And so I think, and and you can see this as you get into episode two, Ray's whole evolution from being a kind of 'er ne'er-do-well, you know, uh, wolf, so to speak, you know, who's a kind of lech really does a 180 and he's, he's not the same person anymore. And he, becomes a little bit like an uncle figure to Lucy once we get into season two. Yeah, which is weird. But but you do have to kind of put it out of your mind. You have to suspend oh, wait a minute. that whole They had a thing sexual relationship when she yeah. was sixteen. Yeah. So it is strange, but apparently he did maybe he didn't like it either. Maybe he didn't like that aspect of his character. And it uh so he insisted that it be changed. I don't know. I don't know whole the whole story, but uh, he didn't really like the way his character was written from that first season. And so you do get a big change in the character of Ray Krebs as we get into season two. So anyway, that's where we leave off. End of episode one, J.R. and Ray's plan to uh, frame Pamela in a uh, extramarital affair with Ray uh, doesn't work out as planned. Bobby threatens J.R. if he ever does anything like this again, which kind of becomes a trope of the whole show is that somebody is grabbing JR by the lapels and telling him if they ever do that again, he'll kick their ass. JR cowers meekly and then goes about conniving and doing his same BS. Until it happens again. (laughs) Until it happens again. And then he cowers again. And then, uh, yeah, it's, uh, watch rinse repeat. Yeah. (laughs) Or tries to, uh, yeah. So anywhere. He doesn't die. No, no, no. You didn't know that? No. No. Well, and I thought that the Who Shot JR episode 
by the way, full disclaimer here or disclosure that that must have been like the finale of the whole series, but it was like no, early we, we on. We literally have uh, 10 more seasons after that. I know. So I'm like, what else can they possibly be about? Oh, I guess we'll find out. Uh, don't read any Wikipedia entries. I won't. Because Booze, broads, and booty. <laughs> if you think the Who Shot JR climax and reveal is like the big one, no, 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 no. We got, we got all kinds of craziness. That I'm gonna like, start calling you my old man after this. It goes way, <laughs> way out there in the stratosphere. Think that uh, season of Roseanne where it was all a dream. Oh, it's a series finale. Uh, yeah, which sucked. I hated no, that. No, it was great. It was no, perfect. Come on, come on. Dream season. It wasn't it wasn't really a dream. She was like writing it because all the bad oh Roseanne. She's a horrible human. But the show, I liked the show. But you really like that? You like that I part did. of the whole thing? But I have to say, like, how when when would that have happened? Like ninety uh, mid nineties. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was in my early teens. Uh-huh. Right? So. I was in my late 30s. <laughs> you were not stopped. <laughs> my old man. Um, <laughs> I need more wine. <laughs> so. <laughs> the, um, uh, he was like graduating from college, but you know, whatever. I was like 14. And when that happened. That was perfect for me. Like, at a, as a 14-year-old girl, I needed things to be wrapped up with a pretty little bow. And it was perfect. I have sure. grown and matured, but I hold lots of nostalgia. So maybe once we finish Why Shot JR, we can revisit the Arnold. Well, uh, or, speaking that of that, last that's... Name? Uh, who? What was their last name on the show? It was it was Arnold. Right? Was it Arnold? Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. But then Rosanna. I was like all confused. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but uh, um, that's a a good segue because I think what we can discuss if the Why Shot Jr. podcast takes off, as I know it will, uh, because all four of our listeners me- are going to write its meteoric rise to uh, number five thousand two hundred eighty on the uh, <laughs> iTunes uh, podcast list. Is uh, you probably don't know this, but there was a little show that came on just a little bit later, uh, a season or two later, called Knots Landing. You ever heard of it? I have never seen it, but I've heard of it. This was one of my mom's favorites. I remember her loving Knots Landing. Uh, there was a guy named William Devane on there. Great speaking voice, by the way. Is he dreamy? Oh my God, William Devane's voice just out of this world. All you Devane heads out there know what I'm talking about. William Devane, just m- magical Devainers, pipes. not Devane. It's in a great movie in the 70s <laughs> called uh, Marathon Man, too, with Dustin Hoffman. If you've never seen it, check that out. Marathon Man, Dustin Hoffman, Lawrence Olivier, that teeth-drilling scene alone. Oh, my God. It will make you never want to go to the dentist. But anyway, Bill Devane's in that, too. And he was on uh, Knott's Landing. Well, Knott's Landing is a spinoff of Dallas. And what Knott's Landing tells the story of is Gary and Valene. Ooh. The parents of Lucy when they move to California and remarry. 
That is the story. Interesting. Indeed. Wait. I think we learn that they're like rekindling in season two. Yes. Okay. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. Well, they they reconnect. Lucy kind of brings them back together in a way because Lucy's always trying to get a hold of her mom who's working in a diner. Yeah, but then even after that, when Lucy pushes her away. Right, correct. Yeah, there's there's others. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. So so anyway, uh, Not Slanting also uh, on the air for 14 seasons. So it might be a good uh, sister podcast. I'm trying to think of a pithy title for Not Slanting. You got anything mm. for that there? I'm, I might need mm. need some time to marinate. Yeah. The I don't know, the Top Knot or something. Top Knot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, stop. All right. Anyway, so that's where we are, folks, on the Why Shot JR uh, episode one, inaugural episode. Digger's daughter, aka the pimp, gets hitched. Uh, Bobby and Pam are now legally wed. They're, dun, dun, dun. They're, they're living with the clan on South Fork Ranch. Everybody's up each other's ass day and night, as you do. As you do. As you do in the great state of Texas. And further adventures await. So, um, until then, it's not just who shot JR. It's why, why shot JR. Till next week, folks. Take it easy. Later. Booze, broads, and booty. It's yellow rose and dicks that I am going to see No other cowboy knows her Nobody, only me She cried so when I left her My laughter broke her heart And if never we meet again We never more shall part She's the sweetest rose of color This cowboy ever knew Her eyes are bright as demons They spark like the dew You may talk about your dearest mains And